Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. Welcome back to Best Virginia, and happy Halloween, folks. I love this time of year. It's my favorite. Halloween is my favorite holiday of the year. I love spooky season. I love the fall time. I love all the horror movies. I just love the atmosphere of spooky season. Today, you're going to listen to an interview that I had the pleasure to have with Ann Lockard. I've had the pleasure to meet Ann a couple times in my life, and she reached out to me whenever I put up a post about, you know, about looking for some interviews for Halloween episodes. She shared a few stories with me, which you guys will have the chance to listen to in just a minute. But Anne actually did some amateur ghost hunting, as she explains it, not just getting together with some friends and going to check out some spooky places, but she tried to go about it the right way. She did some amateur ghost hunting in West Virginia back in the day, and she's going to share some of her spooky stories with us. Before we get into that, though, I want to thank you guys for the love I've been getting for the show. You know, all the follows on Instagram and Facebook at Best Virginia Podcast, those all help. Every share, every like, every subscription on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'm now on Amazon Podcasts. You know, every single like, share, subscription, all of that helps. As you guys probably know by now, I'm... It might not seem like it, and it might not seem like I do the best job sometimes as I fumble and trip over my words, but I'm the only one working on the show, so I'm also the only one promoting it aside from you guys, so I really need help. So please, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your parents, you know, help me get this show out, and the more we share, the more we reach people that have great stories to tell, like our friend Anne. You know, Anne's just an example of, you know, one of the stories that we could hear. This episode is one of two episodes that I'm releasing for Halloween, so be sure to check out the other one in my interview with Bally Raven, Kristen Puckett, illustrator and artist, author, lover of all things spooky, and expert on West Virginia cryptids. So definitely be sure to check that one out. You won't want to miss it. These types of things are why I do this show. So please, if you have anything to share or if you know anyone or even if you think it's really not that great, or you think, oh, this story's just been in the family for a little while, or, yeah, I know this guy down the road that used to talk about this thing, or whatever, please don't hesitate to, to get a hold of me. You can send me a message on Facebook, Instagram. You can email me at bestvirginiapodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear anything and everything you have for me. Even if it's not a, this big elaborate story or this big elaborate experience that we can make a whole episode out of, we can still find a way to work it in, or I can help you promote your story or try to help give you an outlet to tell that story. I want to be able to help people from the Eastern Panhandle have conversations with people in the Southern part of the state. I want to help people from West Virginia have conversations with people in Arkansas, Nebraska, wherever. I want to be able to help get our history out there and offer a place to compile all that and give a place for people to tell their stories and promote their crafts and things like that. Because like I've said from the beginning, we have such a great, rich history and such a rich culture. We can't afford not to share it. I'm done rambling now, guys. So I hope you really enjoy my talk with Ann. Here it is. All right, so my name is Ann Lockard, and I live in Danville in Boone County in West Virginia. And I'm a West Virginia native. I grew up here. And I actually have several experiences that I can share insofar as that ghost stories are concerned. One of them is actually what I consider to be one of the best personally collaborated stories that I've ever heard of. So I'm really excited to, you know, get to share that. 
Um, in my early adulthood, I actually got into amateur ghost hunting. And when I say amateur, I mean that what we would do was not just like a bunch of kids like Scooby-Doo going around at the van and trying to like solve mysteries. It was more like we had, we actually did the research, we got some equipment, like the little, uh, the little uh, meters and the different things and cameras, and we would request permission to go on property if it wasn't, um, you know, if it wasn't something that was public property. And so we tried to do everything the right way. You know, we would talk to property owners, get permission, and we would go to cemeteries and things like that. That was my first, um, that was my first ever you know, going out and actually attempting to get that type of information to see if there could be experiences and or things that we would catch on tape. So now let me reverse and explain why it is that I got into it in the first place. The story that uh, that sparked my interest in this is whenever and I'm going to change names here uh, just to you know because the people you know they're 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 deceased but you know their families may or may not consent to them to change the names but we had some neighbors um, and I'll call them Mary and Steve and um, they were an elderly couple and unfortunately um, Steve developed cancer and he passed away a widowing Mary who they were uh, pretty old by this point but Mary was very much about herself uh, she was a very very nice frail lady and you know obviously we were all very devastated when Steve died well one night my dad worked uh, the midnight shift at uh, the stamping plant in Charleston well one evening uh, dad was getting ready to go to work and he had our family dog out in the yard taking it for a walk and he saw Sherman's ghost across the street at Sherman's workshop so it's their house and then right across the little our little street is where his uh, little shop was that he would do woodworking and things well he saw Sherman's ghost at the shop and he watched him walk up the hill and walk into and as in like through the wall of, the, of, um, of their house Dad told us later, and this is important, he didn't tell us at the time, but Dad said that even our dog was pulling at the at the leash, like that he recognized it and wanted to go to him. Well, my father, um, in totally, completely different stories, he's seen ghosts before, so it wasn't something that he would run in the house. I guess he just, he decided he'd tell, it about it, uh, tell us later, so he went on, went to work, didn't say anything. Well, the next morning, Mary called my mother, and she was all shook up. And she started telling my mother about how she saw Steve standing in her bedroom doorway that the, the last evening. That she was standing, that she was in bed, and he appeared in the doorway. And she was so shocked that the only words that could that she could get out were, "Well, Steve." And then as soon as she spoke to him, he disappeared. So Marie called, or Mary called my mother and was absolutely just, you know, carrying on about this, you know, just this fright that she had seen Steve. And, and so then my dad wakes up after, you know, having slept because he would get, he would get home from night shift before we were ever up in the morning. So he was already asleep. Well, that evening, dad started telling us about seeing Steve's ghost the night before I woke up from the shop. And you can imagine, my mother immediately went spastic because of, of uh, Mary's call earlier in the day saying that she had also seen Steve standing in the bedroom. Oh, wow. So these were two people who absolutely did not speak that saw the same apparition around the same time in the, in the same evening. So I found that to be, that was, uh, I was probably, I was probably 15 or 16 when that happened. And that, that really... You know, my dad had told ghost stories growing up, and but that that it just the fact that they they couldn't have spoken to each other, they saw the exact same apparition. It was the same evening. You know, dad saw Steve's ghost walk into the house, and then Marie or you know Mary said, "I saw him in the doorway." It was just to me that was incredible, and so it really sparked an interest in ooh, you know, I wonder if there's really you know something to them. So. That led into me and some friends of mine kind of got into this 
amateurish, you know, let's go ghost hunting, let's get some permissions, let's get some actual equipment. And so I was, uh, this is started when I was about 18, went on until I was about, mm, just let's say 24 probably. So this has been the early 2000s, about 2001 to 2006. And we started out small. We would just go to local cemeteries. We tried to go to old cemeteries and um, we would take actual tape, uh, the actual cassette tape type of audio recorders with a microphone. And we had the little, um, the little meters that would register like differences in electrical fields. Uh, I think those are pretty popular on the TV shows. So that's what I'd like to tell is um, we did all this before it was cool on TV. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so we started out at some kind of small local cemeteries that were on, you know, kind of out of the way places. And our our typical approach was that you know we would you know, try to, you know, go, we would go in, we try to be very respectful. Um, a lot of times we didn't even do it at night. I mean, it would be during the daytime hours. And we would, you know, go in, we would say, hello, is there anyone here that would like to speak with us? We would be quiet for long periods of time. We would walk around. You know, we would occasionally ask uh, questions like, you know, is there a message or anything that you're wanting, you know, to, you know, is there anything you want us to know, things like that. And then we would leave and take the equipment back that we had, our, our cameras and, and the tape recorders and stuff, and we would play them back to hear anything that we picked up. And most interestingly, we actually got several very low frequency but very, very distinct um, uh, words and voices that appeared on the tape, which I thought was, was very interesting. And these were blanks, so these were not uh, anything we were recording over. So we would pull the tapes and actually listen to them. At one point, um, I was speaking, and the I had said, you know, like, uh, basically, like, hello, you know, we're not here to you know, disturb anything. You know, we're just here to, to have a conversation. And you can hear immediately after I finished talking, you can hear, hello, like, plain as day you could hear it say hello and it was really cool um at one other cemetery i actually had someone tell me to turn around um they that was in the, the thing it said something about you know they said turn around and it was very it was very distinct and um and at one cemetery we actually got told to leave uh, the tape actually said leave and so we did probably the coolest thing that we ever got on tape was Droop Mountain Battlefield uh, in, in southern West Virginia. We decided to do an overnight camping trip uh, at Droop, and it was going to be on the anniversary of the Civil War battle that had occurred there. Our idea was is to take the tape recording equipment, put it up into one of the, the fire towers that's up there, and basically just leave it for the night, um, and it, this is in October, so, you know, it wasn't popular camping at that time. And so, you know, we said, you know, we'll leave it up there. We actually had to get permission from the, uh, from the person who directs the battlefield because we were there after the camping season had closed, and he had to give us permission to stay on the, on the property. So we put the recording equipment in the, in, the, uh, in the fire tower, and we left it for the night. And, and, and then, of course, you know, the next morning we collected it. And I, I'm still, you know, this is the one that I still don't understand as far as, I don't know if maybe a bird got up there and, and, bunked, and bunked it. I'm, I try to be skeptical about these things. But you can hear a man shout, like a call, and then you can hear what absolutely sounds like cannon fire on the tape. Um, it was incredible. And it, it was, you, you could hear voices, and then you'd hear this, you know, this, this shout, and then you'd hear this, and there was nothing. I mean, we were very close to there. It was quiet all night. Um, so that, that was really incredible. So that, you know, the voices were unnerving, uh, but cool. You know, the, the only concerning one that we ever bumped into was the one that told us, you know, to leave, which, of course, we didn't hear until after the fact. So we did leave, but you know, we didn't know. Um, and then, of course, the one that said, you know, hello and turn around. But certainly um, the story of Mary and Steve is the one that will forever stick out in my mind as, you know, two different people seeing the, the same apparition 
the same evening with but without you know having any contact with each other uh, to me that was uh that was very you know people ask me they'll say well do you believe in ghosts i'll say absolutely you know i have you know extremely well you know collaborate from two people who you know had no reason to make this tale up and it was just uh it was really incredible Oh yeah, no doubt, and especially situations where, like you said, they didn't they didn't speak. They couldn't have spoken to each other in that amount of time, and their stories to be the same at the same time. That's always hard to explain away in situations like that, for sure. Well, and that you know, and Dad's saying that he saw the ghost walk into the house, like it, it, where he he actually saw it walk through the wall of the front of the house and disappear. And then for about the same time that evening, then for Mary to have seen the ghost in her doorway. And again, I've changed those names, but uh, for her to have seen that and then called my mother the next morning to tell her about seeing the ghost and then dad waking up and telling us about seeing the ghost and it being same ghost. I mean, it was just incredible. Oh, yeah. Were there ever any other stories involving Mary and Steve? Did that happen again? Uh, no other no other instance that I was aware of um, we kind of chalked it up to maybe he was uh, just checking on her because it, it wasn't very long after he had passed and she was you know her her health wasn't bad but she was just very frail and so I, I just kind of think he was checking on her um, you know she has since passed many years ago as well but it's to me that was just always a, a really incredible story that um, you know that just I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you think about ghosts, a lot of people think spooky, but I imagine in that situation, Mary probably felt some sort of peace. She really did. I mean, she was very, I think she really shook her up, of course. And then, you know, finding out that, you know, my dad had also seen it, you know, kind of just everybody was like, ah, you know, it was a kind of a genuinely terrifying sort of thing a little bit because it was, not just one person, but two independently, you know, two different people. But um, it, we all kind of settled on that he was checking on her, um, and his he was not seen again. And so I, I think that it was a comfort, ultimately. Um, you know, we, we felt good about it. He was a very, very fine man in life, and so there was no... There was no fear associated with it. I think the, the real... Um, it was just shocking because those are typically things that are relegated to storybooks and you don't ever really think that it's really, really, really going to happen like that, that you know, two different people are going to see it, not speak to each other and find out later. It's pretty cool. I think so too. And like you said, he was, I, I mean, I didn't know him obviously, but, um, but you said he was a fine man in life. So that story chalks up to, or it kind of checks out with, the intention that he was coming to check in on her and see how she yeah. was doing after he passed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So um, going back to your ghost hunting days, uh, so what was your first experience with, you know, a legitimate ghost hunt? Um, well, one of the first places that we decided to go, uh, this was before we decided to do it completely legitimately, um, we decided to go to the Lakin State Hospital which was in uh, over around the Point Pleasant area of the state. It's, it's been demolished. This is after it had closed, but before they had torn it down. And it was a state asylum, uh, a mental asylum. Well, one of someone that I knew, uh, one, one of the people that went with us, uh, I think we had like six or seven people that went with us on that one. It was a very large facility. It was in absolute decrepit uh, state. And, you know, we, this was our first excursion, you know, obviously it was posted, you're not supposed to be there. And, uh, you know, we wandered in and it was in a very remote location. So it wasn't like there was guards or, you know, any type of camera equipment. So we just went in and, you know, you could see the padded room walls, you know, where the padding had been torn down and it was, there were still medical records. There were autopsy tables. I mean, it was just a very, just, I, I mean, just something like out of a zombie flick kind of what it looked like inside but um we went around we took pictures there you know how in some of those ghost hunting shows they'll show photos of orbs and things like that we tried to get those types of photos and i actually did have an early um digital camera 
And we tried to take pictures, but unfortunately it was so dusty inside. Of course, it looked like there were orbs everywhere, but they were really dust. Um, we, we took the radio, uh, the recording equipment and that we had at the time, which was one recorder. Um, but unfortunately we weren't well enough organized to, you know, really quiet down enough to get any meaningful tape. It was, um, for that though, several people did get kind of unnerving experiences. I know that at one time, um, I kind of felt like I had stepped into like a cold, very cold room, um, that it was different than the ambient temperature, and that really bothered me. I had a couple of people go in there and be like, does it feel like way colder in that room? And this is, again, this is a facility where, you know, all the doors are torn down, you know, there's no heating and air. I mean, it's, it's gutted, it's, you know, they're going to bulldoze the place. So temperature differences, things like that, you know, that was something that really stuck out there. And we, but we realized from that one that we had to get better at, you know, being organized and getting, you know, having some discipline and actually going places where we could, you know, we were allowed to go. Um, we never, like, I never heard anything. Um, I never, I, I've never seen uh, you know, an apparition myself, like, confirmed like that. Certainly, um, you know, there were times where we would kind of all genuinely feel rather unnerved or you would get, you know, just a, a sense of things not being correct when doing the ghost hunting. But it was really the, the after-processing of listening to the tapes or using the meters and, and you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere where there's no electrical fields and you're getting beeps on the little electric meters and things like that is, you know, it was really the post-processing that brought out the most, um, the most interesting parts of the journey. Though certainly there's nothing wrong with being out on the side of a mountain with your friends, you know, you know, exploring a 200 year old family cemetery, you know, at the top of a hill that's been neglected for, you know, all these years and to go up there and try to have conversations and then actually bring tape back and, and hear, actually hear like really low voices that you can still make out is really, you know, that was very fulfilling for me, I thought. And that kept us going because we're like, oh my gosh, we've got real voices. So we would, you know, go to another cemetery or, you know. And a couple of the other folks that um, after I had my daughter and, you know, didn't have the, the free time, you know, some of the other folks in the group continued to do, um, to do some ghost hunts and, and share their findings. And, you know, some people did take some interesting pictures where you could see like swirling fog or, or things that uh, weren't physically there. But, you know, when they, when they took the pictures, even digitally, you can see, you know, that there was... Uh, things that didn't appear quite right but um, to my knowledge I don't think that they ever got anything that was particularly you know fantastic I think I think that's kind of the holy grail of ghost hunting <laughs> yeah I... everybody wants to find something but you know it's it's you've got to really put yourself out there and um, sometimes it just kind of like with uh, Mary and Steve it just kind of happens right and I think if you know if people just straight up saw ghosts walking around all the time, then it, it wouldn't be as much of a, a debate, really, about science and, I don't know how to put it, the supernatural and science would probably right. be the best way uh, to put it. Absolutely, and, you know, and ghosts, I think, you know, the idea of ghosts, you know, obviously brings into immediate discussion of, well, if there are ghosts, then what is the nature of the ghost? Which, of course, then, you know, that's, you're, you're getting into you know, belief and, you know, what you actually think the nature of a spirit is and that kind of thing. So, you know, I just, um, I know that with Steve, he, you know, it was very benevolent meaning. And so I've, I have, you know, reckoned that in my own mind that, you know, for whatever reason he wanted to come back and check. I, um, I have had my uh, people that have passed away um, check on me in dreams actually um all of my uh, all of the people that have passed um you know my grandparents and and my father uh, who has since passed um you know they've all come to me in dreams to check on me and ask me how they're ask me how i'm doing and let me know that they're okay and things like that so you know i even if that's just an invention of the mind i think there's a, a great comfort that comes with that and uh, i know that's been very comforting to me to get to speak with them and wake up in the morning and be like 
you know, oh man, that was a really nice stream. You know, I got to talk to them. They told me they were the one all right and things like that. Oh yeah, and you know, I I don't know if you know, but I'm a psychologist. Um, and even if it means our brain invents ways to make to comfort us and to protect us. Um, so no matter how you perceive things, sometimes it might not be what it actually is, but I think that still tells us something important. So if you dream something and it means comfort to you, um, or if you see something and it's super scary to you, it might not actually be what it is, but it still means something to you. It's, it's super scary for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's, it's reality and then it's how we process it. Right. I mean, you know. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, okay, yeah, you know, this, uh, you know, like you'll see people say, oh, you know, I was outside and I was talking to my grandfather, you know, who had passed away, and, you know, and a butterfly came and landed on me, you know, that is that, and then, you know, they're like, it, it, it was a message, well, maybe it, it was, maybe it was to them, you know, that's how they chose to process it, maybe objectively that's what happened, we, you know, but you can, if someone, I think, derives at least subjective joy out of it, I think that it's, you know, I think that that's worthwhile. And that's their personal truth, and that's, I think, very important. I think so, too. And you actually brought up a question that I was going to ask you. I hope you all are enjoying this episode of Best Virginia. I just wanted to take a second to tell you guys about some of the great merch I offer. If you go to teespring.com, that's T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G.com, and search for Best Virginia Podcast. You can find Best Virginia t-shirts, hoodies, crew neck sweatshirts, COVID-19 face masks, and coffee mugs, as well as other things that I'll be adding in the meantime. Now, back to the show. What do you think ghosts are? Do you feel comfortable sharing that? Sure. Um, so, my, I think that we... I think that... I think that the afterlife is probably a process. And um, because I, I think that it probably takes us a minute to really realize that we're dead and kind of get things set up to where we're ready to move on to, you know, the more what I'll call the more formal hereafter, which is, you know, like rejoicing, you know, with our families and our, our loved ones that have passed on and things like that. I think that for some people, they, for whatever reason, maybe feel compelled or hang around a little bit longer and maybe check on things or, or take care of some, some, you know, things like, you know, checking on people or, or following up on some things. I mean, I, I think that in a lot of the ghost stories that I've read, um, you know, that's been kind of the, the unfinished business idea. But in some ways, I think that, you know, we're all equal, you know, everyone who dies is equally dead, but I think that there are just, for some people, maybe the process is just a little bit longer to, you know, really settle into the idea of, oh, yeah, I'm gone, and, you know, instead of, like, going around and, and checking on their, their family, you know, kind of ad infinitum. So, you know, that's kind of where I've come to with it, because it's like with, with uh, Steve, you know, he... He, that was very soon after his death, and then his, his apparition was never seen again. So, you know, to us, we just reckoned it as, you know, he was checking on her to make sure that she was okay. Yeah, and that definitely and, supports what you were saying. You know, he had yeah. unfinished business, and then, you know, he saw that she was okay and was ready to move on, if you're, yeah. if you're looking so at it that I way. Think, I think with some, and then I, I think back to, you know, of course, one of the most famous ghost stories, the Greenbrier Ghost, and the fact that... Um, you know, that uh, Zora Easter Shoe, you know, her ghost, you know, wound up convicting her murderer. To me, you know, her appearing to her mother and, you know, giving her this information it, in the story, that to me also collaborates the idea of trying to take care of something maybe while you have the ability because maybe it's something that it's difficult or the closer you are to being from being alive, like, you know, shortly after death, maybe it's easier for them to continue to interact with us in reality. And then that, that is, you know, slips away. So it's a very, it's definitely an interesting debate. Obviously I'm, I'm skirting, you know, any type of, you know, religious connotation to this and just discussing it from a, just, you know, just a, I guess what you could say, maybe a secular theorizing idea, but 
Yeah, I just think maybe maybe it just takes us a little while to really settle into the notion that we're really dead, and maybe you know it's time to to move on. Well, you know, there's if you look at it from that way, um, kind of the step before that part, I guess. There's a lot of scientific proof that that happens. You know, there's a lot of people more, some people more willingly go towards their death than others. And some people, you know, their body kind of takes a little bit to catch on that it's dead. Sometimes, you know, nervous, um, the way our nervous system continues to react on some, on some level, that says a lot too. I know that that's like electrical activity and things like that as well, but, you know, so is our brain activity. And oh, I th- yeah, but it, but it does raise the question of, well, maybe on, you know, whether you, you fashion the idea of a spirit or soul or some type of co- continuity of consciousness, that maybe it's kind of the same thing, that maybe some consciousness, uh, some people just have a harder time, you know, shutting down into like, okay, you know, I'm, I don't have to be, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then, you know, then I'll, I'll be okay. Right, and I'll there's even... There's even some studies that show that people's brain activities are linked to one another. Um, like if you look at, there's this famous twin study, and I, my professors are going to probably hunt me down and beat me up because I don't remember the <laughs> the name of it. Um, but there were these two twins that were separated at birth, and they met when they were like in their late 30s, early 40s, but they lived like the exact same life. And they both were volunteer firemen. They both... Like, they looked, I mean, they were identical twins, but they kept themselves up the same. Like, they but they lived virtually identical lives, which is, you know, is to be expected on some level if you're raised together, but they never even knew that each other existed. And yet they had this, they had this link that they shared that, you know, was otherwise inex- inexplicable because they weren't around each other to, to have those types of influences. Right, and then they finally met up, and they're like, "Wow, you're my." They were best friends, and it's yeah. like it's like a super famous uh, case study. But it was, and they both said that they f- always felt like they weren't alone, like that they there was a, a piece of them was missing, and they were kind of quoted by different people um, saying that. And I, I I just think that says something, you know. That I don't think that can be ignored. I think that um, now you mentioned that you are a psychologist. I am a, I'm a geographer and a meteorologist by trade. Um, but uh, in geography, with uh, you know, I've studied a lot of not only physical geography but also um, cultural and human geography as well. And you know, the way that people interact with each other and interact with their places, I think, is important. And in the context of this, because when you know, if if the world is more complicated, and we can almost guarantee it's always more complicated than what we think it is, and reality is a bit more complicated, then at the way we interact with things in life, it kind of makes sense that we would maybe interact with the same landscapes sort of in depth. And I think that's why ghosts sometimes are able to find their way home or, you know, check on people, you know, because, you know, uh, Steve didn't, he didn't pass at home. You know, he, he passed away in the hospital. So then you have to think, okay, well, then how did his spirit, assuming that it's tethered to his body, then how then would it have made the, 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 the miles trek, you know, back to where his home was? And to me, well, then you would have to follow the physical geography of the place to be able to get there. So if, if ethereal things can follow physical pathways and and, and you know, get to us in those ways, then I think on some level our, re- our world has to be interacting with their world in a, in a meaningful way as well. So it just kind of, you know, sometimes it makes me wonder if there really is like a, like our world and then there's kind of the, the still the shadow of our world maybe in the spirit world where they're, they're still able to find their way. Right, and, you know, even there's proof that there's things around us that we can't see there's colors we can't see. There are certain light spectrums that we can't see or light frequencies that we can't see. Oh, yeah, that right there is like, yeah, x-rays exist and our, our, our eyeballs just can't see them, right? I mean, we, we only have a finite set of senses. Right. So I, I think that, um, you know, there's still so much, so much. We, we have barely treaded water on the knowledge that is out there to be discovered. In fact, I, I read an article a while back that said there's a whole, like, 
you know, truckload full of Nobel Prizes for the people who, you know, make discoveries when it comes to things like dark matter and dark energy and this that they can observe in the universe that don't understand it. But I think there's a lot of these mysteries here at home. But, you know, I'm not afraid of, of ghosts or spirits. Um, I think that, I think if it's an interesting and, and unfortunately kind of overlooked part of our culture, I think that uh, we as, you know, I think that Americans, generally speaking, don't like death. You know, we, we think that death is something to be avoided at all costs. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with the subject of death or, you know, even visiting their loved ones in cemeteries. I think that there is definitely a feeling of detachment from that necessary part of our existence that we don't see in other cultures. Like when, you know, we see, um, they, I'm reminded of the, the Disney Pixar movie Coco, where they have the ofrendas and they, uh, you know, and they're honoring their ancestors, um, because that's very important in, uh, in you know, Mexico and in a lot of Latin American countries about, you know, honoring your ancestors. And they have this day set aside where they clean their mausoleums and they do these things to honor their dead. And, you know, those are things that have really slipped away from our common consciousness. And so perhaps there is a reason why there are more ghost stories in, in times when people were putting themselves in places and spaces to meaningfully interact with the spirit world, whereas now I think that we try to avoid that subject and anything to do with it really to a fault. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And what that makes me think of is um, when I'm talking about grief with my patients, usually their first, um, you know, as, as of right now in my career, grief is still a pretty um, new subject to me. I'm still, you know, I'm still learning, still learning a lot from my colleagues and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, grief in regular life too, not just in a clinical setting, but what the first, if you ask someone what their goal is when they're dealing with grief early on in the process, it's usually to avoid the feelings. They don't like it, so it's not comfortable. So we, we want to figure out how to get rid of those feelings rather than embrace them. Right, and work through them. Right. And I think that, and, I, and that's what I think culturally, that we're really keeping ourselves away from a, a and I know this is going to probably sound a bit odd, you know, to your listeners, but a healthy relationship with death. And I say that because certainly, you know, we all very much enjoy being alive. We want to be healthy. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's not that anyone is actively you know, wanting to be sick or anything like that, but just the understanding that it is a process that all of us must go through. Um, it's a consequence of life. And to look uh, to the example of other cultures that have continued to maintain a healthier relationship with death and their ancestors, and how, yes, death is something, you know, when our loved ones pass away, of course we mourn. We mourn terribly. But I get a lot of comfort from knowing that maybe that I can still interact with them in a meaningful way and honor them and tell their stories and go, you know, put flowers on their graves and speak to them and, you know, and have a meaningful relationship with them even, uh, even beyond, I think, that, you know, just the trappings of life. I think that if we maybe became more culturally attenuated to that, I think that it would help a lot of people work through that process of not just feeling like they have to avoid grief, but working through it and, you know, I just think there would be a lot to be gained there uh, culturally. I think it would probably improve people's mental health around the, the death and the grieving process. I would definitely agree with you on that um, because you look at you look at other cultures, like you were saying, who kind of celebrate death, like celebrate the, the individual's life surrounding death rather than, you know, looking at it as this, you know, I don't know how to put that. But you look at when you lose someone, yes, it's a terrible loss and there's no way around that. But being able to put that energy in, you know, honoring that person and celebrating that person kind of it gives you a, a different kind of viewpoint and a different kind of connection to them and to the to the event absolutely and i think and but i think that the the difficulty is culturally we, we're just not 
we're not equipping our children and we're, we ourselves are not getting innately equipped with that type of relationship, what I'm going to call like a holistic relationship with death. You know, if someone is adamant for, you know, uh, that a ghosts are not real, that spirits are not real, then they would have, you know, you know, and, and I'm not, you know, faulting anyone that has that worldview, but it's just, it, it then shuts the door for maybe having a meaningful interaction with that person's spirit per se. And, you know, and a lot of that, you know, is going to go also towards, you know, people's religious connotations. You know, if they believe their loved ones are in heaven and, you know, perhaps, you know, some people will speak or pray, you know, and, and speak to their loved ones that way. I think that's good. But I just think culturally, when it comes to just death as an idea and as a process uh, for, the, for the actual dying person as well, it would do a lot to, I think, alleviate the fear and, and the, you know, and the difficulties that that people also face as they go through the dying process. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. Um, And that's something that comes up in my work and in my personal life. And uh, I really like that you used uh, Coco as as an example earlier. Um, Because first of all, I love that movie. Okay, listeners, if you have not watched the movie Coco, watch the movie Coco and you will understand, you know, and pay very close attention to how, you know, not only to the plot of the story, but also just to the, the wonderful, um, the wonderful cultural, uh, you know, norms, uh, you know, in Spanish, in Mexican culture, where they have the ofrenda, where they are, you know, decorating it with their ancestors' photos, and it's just, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, healthy relationship where, you know, they're celebrating that their families are coming back to visit them one night a year, and it's, you know, I, I just think it's a lovely and much more healthy way of, of coping, I think, with loss and with grief and, uh, in, like you said, in a celebratory way. So I strongly recommend, like, I, I, I ask, like, people, I'll be like, you have to go watch that movie. I second that. Um, fun, the, I have a kind of funny story. First of all, there's so little sadness in that movie um, compared to, like, what the subject... It's a pretty heavy subject for, I mean, for kids, but it's. I think that's a good thing, and it handles it with such little sadness compared to some of the other Disney movies. Um, no, it really does, and and I think it, it's able to accomplish that also because you know, you know, Mama Coco is you know obviously just beloved, but it's also accepted that Mama Coco is very old, and that she you know is is wanting you know to see this. And I won't spoil the the whole. You know, I won't spoil the plot or anything, but. You know that she she you know is is wanting some closures and things like that you know before and there's closure that the family needs but you're right at the end it's a celebration um you know that that things are in the natural order you know i think that you know obviously it's it's all around tragic when someone dies before their time you know with no one you know it, it just absolutely destroys families you know if they lose children or if they lose you know, people in their younger years, like we're seeing, you know, affect so many families, especially here in West Virginia. And, uh, you know, that's one thing. But whenever you are dealing with just the natural process of someone who's lived well and they're, they're very old and they're, you know, they're passing away, you know, I, I think that it, that movie does a lot to kind of help, you know, understand that, that more, like I said, I keep going back to what holistically, but really I, th- I think that's, you know the best way I can describe it. No, I think that I think that's a good description. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you sharing your outlooks on all that. Um, no, one, absolutely. I'm just I'm really glad to you know to have the conversation. It's great. Yeah, I think you know I, I love I love getting into these kind of conversations with anybody. Um, but it sounds like you really know your stuff and you put a lot of thought into this, and that means a lot too. Uh, one, you know, I kind of want to go back to, if you have a little bit of time, I want to kind of want to go back to some of your ghost hunting stories. Sure. Um, so we talked about your first one, and you talked about, like, one of your favorites, so kind of with the uh, Civil War battlefield. I, I kind of want to go back to that for a second. Because sure. I, I think that's awesome, because whenever you said that you heard, like, a man yell and then what sounded like cannon fire. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was loud. I mean, it was like you'd hear this... I, and it's, of course, extremely difficult for me to, to mimic anything. So I would I will not do it justice. But you'd almost hear this like, ah, and then just this, I mean, absolute just rapport. 
of, you know, that sounded like Cannabar. And, and that was the only thing we're like, did something move the mic? Did something hit it? Because it was so loud and the, everything out there was just still. But everything was as it was set up. It was set up with the little tape recorder and a little microphone that was sitting there and nothing looked disturbed at all. So it was just, um, we, we actually, um, some other tape that came off of that was someone counting cadence. You could actually hear a very, very low. Um, you could hear this like, almost, what it sounded like when we did the recording was like up to three is what you heard. But that probably wasn't exactly what was said, but that's the best way we could relay it. But it sounded like someone intentionally counting cadence, which I thought was a really, really neat thing. Um, you know, sometimes you would hear things, but it would, it's not uh, anything that you can make out into words. But certainly the, the battlefield was interesting. The place we really wanted to go, of course, is Gettysburg, and we did not have the opportunity. I would love um, some time to be able to, to visit other battlefields and to do that. And, but Droop was, was a, an amazing experience to, to get some of the tape that we got there and, um, you know, and just to walk around the grounds and understood, you know, because ghost hunting is also a, a great opportunity to interact with history. Um, you know, we had to research it. When was the battle? You know, we so we could make sure we're there. You know, on the anniversary of the actual battle. You know, so it's a it's also a great way to get people interested in the history of you know who it is that they're researching or where it is that they're going, which I think is really cool. Oh yeah, and there's so much history here too uh, that a lot of people don't even. And that's one of the reasons I've, um, like we talked earlier, you haven't had a chance to check out a lot of the episodes yet, but. And, and again, there's very few so far, but so it's still a pretty young show. But one of the things I want to get into is is the Civil War history because that's, you know, first of all, that's what our state was founded on. Um, that's kind of what spawned the birth of West Virginia. And a lot of people kind of know like a little bit about all these stories and stuff, but there were some, a lot of really historical battles uh, in the Civil War and not to mention all the other things that have happened since. And before, um, I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes, and I'm still doing some research about uh, a lot like prehistoric West Virginia. Um, a, a guy that one of my listeners he sent me um, an email with some uh, with some research that he's done about like petroglyphs and stuff found in West Virginia. Yes, I actually have a couple of locally published can't call the books they're, they're like like pamphlets. But they are actually about the West Virginia petroglyphs. I would, I will have to figure out a way to share those with you if you would be interested. Oh, of in course I would. Those. And um, and and about prehistoric West Virginia, my father was an avid hunter of Native American um, of artifacts in the Kanawha Valley, and I have display cases full of arrowheads and hammerstones and all kinds of wonderful Indian artifacts that my father found in the Kanawha Valley. Um, it was something that he loved to do, and it was always something that was just a, a very important part of his life, and I was fortunate to inherit his collection, uh, you know, when he passed. And so it's, it's really, really amazing, the uh, just the rich history, the, the pre-European history that's here. Um, it, it's incredible. Oh, wow. that That's awesome. Uh, yeah, you'll have to... Send me some pictures of some of that stuff or something. Sometime. Oh yeah, I will totally. Yeah, I will be more than. I'll be glad to share some pictures, and I will. I will uh, see about with the books. You know, I'll find a way to to maybe get those to you so you can take a look at them. But it, it really is. There's been a lot of activity here and a lot of things about our land that we're still discovering, and that's you know very important. And then of course, you know, with, with all of those tales and all of those histories come the spirits and the ghosts. And the appearances that have, you know, you hear about ghost lights in the hills and, you know, all of the ghosts that surround, uh, you know, coal mining stories and things like that. I think it's all really incredible. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, the Greenbrier ghost earlier. I haven't done an episode on that yet, but it's on my list. Um, but I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the tale of Mamie Thurman. Yes. Uh, I have done an episode on her. That's one of my favorite all-time ghost stories, period. Uh, but definitely one of my favorite stories to tell about West Virginia, just because there's it's just such a juicy story. Uh, there's oh, so there much. Is. There's so and, much going on. We have such a we have such a rich, rich cultural heritage when it comes to ghosts 
and ghost stories. And uh, you know, your reader or your uh, your listeners, if they have a chance to pick up some of Ruth Ann Music's book, The Telltale Lilac Bush, and and those, I mean, those are wonderful, wonderful uh, stories of West uh, of West Virginians that um, I think just really add a lot of you know just a lot of wonderful cultural heritage and value, you know, in those stories, whether you believe them or not. It, it really is a lot about us as a people, I think, and where our heritage and where we come from as Native West Virginians. Well, yeah, that, um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there whenever you said that we have such a rich history, because that's for sure. Uh, I mean, especially, like you said, when it comes to ghost stories and things like that, because there's there's like a cultural aspect and there's a personal aspect and everything's a product of its time and things like that. And the times in West Virginia have have changed in different areas in different ways. Uh, some oh, areas have blown up. I mean, we've been so dynamic throughout our history and... You know, like you mentioned with Mamie Thurman, and but all you know, the labor struggles, and you know, and our you know extractive industry history here, and just uh, the this, the rural nature of our state, and you know, just how you know remote and rugged all of this that we you know, especially here in Southwest, you know, West Virginia and the coal fields, this was a very very remote and and in largely in an inaccessible area until about the last 110 years. And so when you think of that, you know, this really being the wilds of Appalachia, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, the people who lived here had to be tough. And they carried a a rich oral history that I think has been, um, you know, there a lot has been lost, I think, because of the, the the malign, just the maligning of the hillbillies and the, the that idea that was perpetuated of like the backwards Appalachian or you know the, the the you know ignorant hillbilly you know I think a lot of kids didn't want to be like their parents or tell those old stories and we're just very fortunate we have had some historians you know that have captured that and put it into print but you know there's a lot that's still here to be celebrated. Um, but, you know, it's overcoming those stereotypes, I think, as well, and, and getting people to say, no, you know, listen to the old man down the road that, you know, you know, it's, he's not, you know, just some, you know, podunk guy. Like, he's got knowledge that is important. And, you know, broader society has, I think, impressed upon us as natives, you know, to say, well, you should be ashamed of yourself or you should get out of Appalachia or you should do better when, you know, that's not you know, that's not the narrative. You know, we have a, a culture here that's worth celebrating and worth, you know, getting more information out there. Oh, absolutely. And even, you know, even when I first went to college, I, you know, I just went to Marshall about two hours from where I grew up in Boone County. Oh, I'm a Marshall grad too. Okay. Yeah, I have my undergrad from Marshall and I'll get my uh, master's degree in geography in May from Marshall. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, awesome. Go herd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I first went there, it was kind of like a like a small fish in a big pond type situation for me. That was my experience because I met these other, you know, growing up, I didn't really meet a whole lot of people from a lot of distant places. And, you know, there was the guy next door to me was from Haiti and uh, people were across the hall from me were from, you know, just a couple of states over and things like that. But I felt, you know, when people would ask me where I was from, I would, you know, just kind of tell them what the, you know, what the social media, like what media says about where I'm from. And, you know, I was kind of, there was never really times that I was ashamed, but there were times that I was like, uh, yeah, I'm just from Boone County, and uh, but then now, you know, as I've as I've been here longer, and as I've you know gotten older and learned to appreciate where I'm from more and stuff like that, not just from the county and the town that I was from, but mm-hmm. just the state in general. But you know, when people ask me where I'm from, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Boone County, and then they're like, oh yeah, Boone County, and then they're like, you know, I get a couple different reactions, but you know, I, I, I'm proud of where I'm from. And even going to going to different states and different places, I always tell people, and you know, then I try to sit down and tell them some of the stories that I've heard along the way, and they're like, "Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you guys were just a bunch of inbred hillbillies." And, no, <laughs> that's not really the case. <laughs> you know, and, and we joke, but I actually 
have been places where they have they have been astonished that I have all my teeth. I oh mean, yeah. And, and I mean, in a real, and I mean, and that sounds campy, but in a real material way, they're like, "Oh, you do wear shoes." And it's like, "Wow, okay, you know, <laughs> this is the 21st century, but okay." <laughs> right, and then my favorite is you don't sound like you're from West Virginia. Oh. Well, <laughs> what's that sound like exactly? Yeah, what am I supposed to sound like? Oh, I want to. And and in in our insular state, you know, we have. 55 counties, we have at least 55 accents, if not more. I mean, you know, anywhere you go, everybody talks just a little bit differently. Uh, one thing that I will, uh, I think that uh, would be important for the listeners, whether it be ghost stories, your family, your, your grandparents, your parents, your aunts and uncles or cousins, someone in your family has a story to tell. It may not be a ghost story. It may be, you know, something of family or cultural importance. The only way to know your stories is to ask. I really encourage people to sit down with their grandparents and say, you know, Papa, did you ever, have you ever seen a ghost? And maybe he will launch into a story that you've never heard and that he probably wouldn't have ever thought to tell unless you asked him. And um, so that is one of the most, uh, just like we're having this interview here, kind of by happenstance, right? Um, You know, you don't know the stories until you ask and and reach out to people. So, you know, if you're interested as to what your family's experiences have been, you know, make time to sit down and, and ask them and say, what what have you experienced? Have you ever seen anything strange? You might get everything from UFO encounters to ghosts to who knows what, but it, it would be, to me, I think that would just, uh, that's something I always made it a point, you know, to ask my my grandparents, you know, things, and I asked my father a lot of things, you know, before, um, you know, before he passed, and, you know, I try to, to collect that information because once they're gone, you if, if it wasn't told, you can't get it back. Right, and even, I love that, that's great advice, Um, and even culturally, it might not be anything like UFO or ghost or anything like that, but even culturally, culturally, just how people live from generation to generation, you know, that gets lost along the way too, like my parents' struggles and their parents' struggles, and you know, we don't really see where where we're at until we see where we came from. You're right, and then finding out, you know, the incredible amount of talents that your grandparents and that perhaps your parents, you know, had to have to survive. You know, maybe Grandpa has done work as a stone cutter, and he did work, you know, working in the graveyard, digging graves when he was laid off from the mines, and, you know, and he, you know, knew how to grow potatoes and and put them away in this particular way so they wouldn't spoil or you know and and these are things there's been a great revival modernly in the in what I'm going to refer to as the the prepper or the preparation of the survival movement so I think it's very valid but but the, the biggest thing is is a lot of that knowledge used to be common knowledge and, and practical. a lot of that knowledge is still alive in our parents and our grandparents and we just have to access it and say, you know, Grandma, can you teach me how to can? And she's like, oh, yeah, we used to do that all the time. It's how we had to have food. Yeah, and, and that's how, like, what we see. As, oh, sometimes there's things now that are more, like, uh, not as practical, but they're more like fads and things like that, too. You think about, like, um, one of my favorite things, and this is, I'm starting to to get into brewing beer myself, um, but you know, it's this huge explosion. Like everybody wants to brew their own beer and stuff. But back in the day, that's, that's the only way you got beer. And if you look at moonshine and stuff like that, that's what you, that's how you got your stuff. You made that's it yourself. Right. And there's this huge boom of learning how to, uh, like artisanal and things like that, like making your own stuff and putting your own spin on things. But back then that was, like you said, that was normal. That was, that's how you had it. That's it. So, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's an incredible art and a science. And someone might say, well, how are two men on the side of a mountain in the middle of the night hiding from revenuers who are brewing moonshine and don't have but a second-grade education, how are they doing science? And you know what? This, it's, you know, there's a lot of 
there, there's a very, very, very you know, large misunderstanding modernly that you have to be formally educated to be intelligent. Right. <laughs> and we know from our history that education was, we know that education is not intelligence. And some of our, you know, some of the, the living and the dead were, a, were capable of amazing amounts of precision and, and care and, you know, just you know, an excellence to their art and their craft that they never learned, you know, in a book or from, you know, from college or anything like that. And, you know, there's, which to me makes it all the more incredible and, uh, and worthy of, of telling that, you know, they had to discover it and pass it down themselves. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And whenever we're talking about, even looking at like moonshine, moonshiners and stuff, you know, like the amount I've learned the process of making moonshine. I don't make moonshine, but I've learned the process, and it's not easy. It's not something you just stumble across and be like, "Oh yeah, this tastes pretty good." And oh, it, no, that stuff can kill you. <laughs> yeah, you got to get it right, and you've yeah, got to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I no, I think that there's a lot that I would absolutely if if uh, if your listeners. Um, you know, don't get anything else out of this other than, you know, cool, couple cool ghost stories. Um, definitely sit down and, and talk to people, you know, talk to your families, especially your older family members, and just ask them. And you may, you may be very surprised by the responses that you get. And even if grandma doesn't want to talk about it, grandpa might, or maybe one of your aunts or uncles heard the tale that no one else will tell. So don't be afraid to ask people about, you know, what was it like growing up? You know, my next door neighbor, he shared with me one time, kind of semi-unprompted, I asked him a random question about his childhood. He didn't have indoor plumbing in his home until he was 10, and he didn't get his first pair of shoes until he was four years old. Now, this is this is an older gentleman, but it, I found that to be, you know, remarkable that, you know, they lived and, you know, his, his father worked locally in the mines, but they were very poor, and, you know, and he you know, talk about you know, being 10 years old and helping his dad plumb their house with, uh, with water for the first time. And, you know, there are people who are listening to this who will say, like, you know, in living memory, like, this has literally happened. Like, he's, like, 74 years old, so he's not, like, in his 90s. And, you know, he was... So, I mean, this is something that is very modern, and these people have stories to tell and things to share with you if you just ask. So find out your cool family ghost story or find out, you know, what your family used to do well. They used to say that one of my ancestors used to trade liquor to the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's what we were told growing up was that some of our ancestors traded whiskey to the Indians. Well, if nothing else, you passed that along and we just got a quick chuckle out of it. There we go. Right, so, so you, know, you, just, you never know what might crop up in your, in your family history. Absolutely. I, I think that's amazing advice, Anne. Um, do you have any other, anything else that you kind of want to touch on before, before we, uh, call it quits or? Well, I think, I mean, I, I really appreciate, you know, you, your time and just having the opportunity to, you know, just, just to kind of share some of my, you know, glad, always glad to share stories. And of course, some of the thoughts that we have on, you know, just, you know, a lot of these things that are you like to speculate on, we don't have any concrete answers, but it's awfully nice to kind of debate, I think, or, you know, offer ideas on the nature of the spirit or, you know, why, if ghosts are here, why would they be here in the first place? I think it's interesting. But I think that it's so much, uh, there's so much importance in in continuing to capture these stories, uh, regardless of, you know, whether or not they're factual objectively doesn't mean that they're not someone's truth. And capturing the truth in these things that, you know, from your family's experiences or friends or in your communities is a very, very worthwhile project and that you can then pass that along. And then that lives. Just like whenever you all go watch the movie Coco, because I'm sure everyone listening is going to go watch Coco. But you're going, they're going to be remembered, and through that they get to live. So I, I just really, really hope that nothing else just inspires some people to ask some questions maybe they've never asked before and maybe find out some really cool information about their family. Wow, yeah, we, I appreciate that. That's some great advice. Um, well, I, I appreciate you coming on here, Ann, and I, I think you know, I think we'll have to get, get together again another time and you cool. know, talk about some more stuff because that's, that's... I love that, and 
definitely get back with you on the the petroglyphs and some of that information. And um, you know, unfortunately, I don't have anything to plug. I'm just a local, but um, you know, if uh, I'm sure if anyone has any questions or would like any follow up, um, do you have your contact information? You know, maybe you could just you know, if they if anyone reaches out, you know, they're more than happy. I'd be glad to you know speak to anyone if they're interested in, in learning some more. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send them your way. Uh, that's that's what I wanted. That's one of my main goals here. I, I definitely want to do the episodes where I talk about different parts of the history and different things like that. But one of my main things is to help get people connected and and learn each other because we're all a family. And absolutely, I think absolutely we are, and we and we need to start acting like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thank best you. piece of advice. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your night. Yeah, thank you. I hope you do too, Anne. We appreciate right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope y'all enjoyed today's episode of Best Virginia. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Ann Lockard. We really appreciate having you on here, Ann. I'm your host, Jordan. And until next time, stay wild and stay wonderful.